And uh, if you've been with us any length of time, you know we've been going through this book, uh, going by chapter, by chapter, verse by verse. Um, I want to start this morning just by reading the little passage that we'll be looking at. Uh, we're only looking at two verses today, verses 14 and 16. Um, and we, a couple weeks ago, started moving into this little section, and we realized it's kind of dense uh, topic and subject matter, so we wanted to kind of slow down a little bit. So if you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we can get you a Bible. Uh, some of the ushers are happy to get you guys one. Uh, we wanted to slow down a little bit and just let the text speak to us because there's a lot here. We don't want to rush through it. In a lot of ways, it encapsulates uh, the larger theme as to what Paul is uh, trying to accomplish through this uh, amazing book. So I'll read verses 14 to 16, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll begin to unpack this and take a look at this. So verse 14 starts off, and it says, in fact, I'm going to start off in verse 13, kind of uh, one verse before, and then we'll read to 16. It says, verse 13, until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. He says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14 now. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waters and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in every way unto him who is the head unto Christ from whom the whole body Joined, held together uh, by every joint which, by, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in short, pray in just a second, Paul's talking about maturity, he's talking about expansion, he's talking about growth, he uses the metaphor of a body, he uses the metaphor of a, of a house or a building that's having room additions uh, added onto it. So there we go, an architectural type of a theme that Paul uses as well, aside from a natural biological theme in terms of a human body. But the point that Paul is trying to emphasize here is that those that are in Christ, the Christian people that have been rescued by God, come in as spiritual infants, spiritual babes, but then the next step is for them to begin to grow, uh, to mature, to begin to build out, grow out into, grow up into what he describes as a mature manhood. So we'll take a look at what that maturity looks like in just a moment. So I'll pray, and then we'll begin to take a look at the passage. So God, right now we ask that you that you would help us understand what it looks like to mature. What it is, what it isn't, God, we uh, oftentimes could have false perspectives as to what this is. Uh, so we ask you, God, right now that you'd help us to understand what it looks like, that we would grow, that we wouldn't miss really what you desire to do in us and through us as a community of people that have been rescued in this world. So help us. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see, God. Give us hearts that are quick and willing to want to receive and repent and do that hard work of repenting, God, so that we would lay hold of that which is life-giving, that which leads to Jesus, that which is Christ, that which is healing and redemptive. So God, we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with the first slide. Um, a lot of this is kind of homework that we've been looking at over the past several weeks of reiterating this. But again, I want to emphasize this because I think the more I look at this great book, the more I realize I think this is, this is really the heartbeat behind what, is Paul, what Paul is talking about. So we can read a handful of verses and kind of fine-tune some of these things that we're looking at. But like we've been saying over the past several weeks, we don't want to miss the larger theme that's at work or that's at play within the, the whole framework of what Paul's talking about. So chapters 1 through 3, we've been talking about and saying that really 
uh, the first several chapters have to do with the actions of a healing God. And what this implies is that this, this universe, as well as individuals, are broken. So this implies certain elements. Uh, it implies the fact that we are broken people. And we live within a broken world. And that there's at least three different ways in which our brokenness permeates all things. We're broken as individuals, meaning our relationships with others on a horizontal level are broken. That's one of the reasons why we envy other people. We may be jealous or we may struggle with hatred or we carry certain forms of offense or we find ourselves being easily frustrated with other people or we are very impatient. You can't be impatient on the sideline or alienated. Impatience only works by the nature of it with another person. You're like, oh, how does that work? You have to have at least two people together to prove that you're an impatient person, right? And so impatience uh, is with, by nature, other people. But the reality is all it always shows is that we are broken individuals with other broken people. Uh, We're broken within our own selves as human individuals. Uh, As I already kind of prayed for, even the fathers, we realize a lot of us as dads, we haven't met the mark of what it looks like to be a really good father. Some of us may look at our lives and think, as a human being, you're not the type of person that you want to be, or maybe you're short-tempered, or maybe you've got issues in your life that you are ashamed of, or things that you've done in the past that you wish weren't that way. Or the, you know, the old, here's the thing that I've learned as you know, a follower of Jesus over the past, I don't know, 20-some years growing. The older I get, the more I realize that the things that really trouble me are not always the big things like when I first became a Christian where maybe for when I was a brand new Christian there were certain habits where I felt like I was calling me to lay aside and I was you know trying to overcome those things you know drinking getting drunk doing drugs all those other types of things that could be biggies but the older that I get in my walk with Jesus the more frustrating I can get with myself the more frustrated I can get with myself over little things like being impatient. I mean, you were like, why was he talking so much about impatience? Because like, that's me. Like, I can identify impatient people because that is what I am most well at seeing in my own self. That these are the things that I can look at myself and realize my impatience with other people, with my family in particular, could actually cause great damage to their hearts, to their souls. It's, it ruins, it breaks fragile relationships and i can get really frustrated with that so the reality is not only are we broken individuals on a relational level with other people we're broken as human beings in our own selves not being the people that we want to be not living the way that we really want to live but we're also ultimately broken in relation with god that in other words rather than loving god giving God credit, giving God honor, worship, praise, of which God is worthy, we oftentimes omit worshiping God. So here's what I mean on a very natural, simplistic level. All of us as human beings are always prone to praise that which we love most. It's just how we are wired. It's one of the reasons why if you eat a really good meal, you annoy the rest of us on Facebook by posting photos of the food that you just ate. Because you're praising it. Or if you see a sunset or a sunrise that was absolutely spectacular, you want the rest of the world to see that. And some of us that actually have a taste for sunsets and sunrises and we see those things, we want to enter into that praise with you and we might comment and say, I saw that last night, that was amazing. Or we like it because we, we particularly like it. We're entering into the praise with you over the fact of that beautiful sunrise, sunset. Or if you have a child, you want to post pictures and there's a 
level or balanced to some degree. Like some people kind of put up with little kid picks. They're like, oh, that's a really cute one. But then it, when it gets excessive, the rest of everybody else is like, why do they constantly keep posting pictures of their kids? Because we naturally want to affirm and exalt that which brings us great delight and great glory, great happiness. Does that make sense? You guys following? And the reality is when it comes to God, God also, the reason why we naturally enter into praise and exaltation and glorying that which brings us great delight, it's just a natural thing to do. And so therefore, oftentimes when God, the ultimate source of goodness, isn't entered into praise and worshiped and honored and thanked, that is a fail. It's a fail. It it literally boils down to God gives us the most unbelievably beautiful things, and sometimes it could just simply be through ignorance, like, oh, forgot, or it could be through obstinance, meaning I refuse, I don't want to, or it's disbelief, meaning I don't want to worship God, I don't like God, I don't believe in God, I may be an atheist, and so I marginalize God off into the realms of people that don't have very good thinking skills, and so therefore it's a disbelieving type of an action, or it just simply might be the fact that Uh, we are just simply not entering to worshiping and praising God. So the point of the matter is that at the end of the day, we worship and exalt in that which oftentimes is lesser than God. When it comes to God, we omit. So in other words, rather than thanking God for really good food or beautiful sunrises or sunsets or the birth of a healthy child or a good church environment, church life or riches or wealth or goods or a roof over our heads or really good meal with really good friends. All of these things, oftentimes we forget those things. And the reality is all those things come from God. And so there is a, there's a brokenness within ourselves. There's a brokenness amongst ourselves as human beings. And then there's a brokenness between us and God. And so God says, I'm going to heal that. I'm going to come into this world that is broken on every single level I'm going to make right that which is broken. I will heal that. So we see chapters 1 through 3, all these statements that Paul is talking about, saying that God is going to heal. God has healed. God has entered into his own story. It's as if the author of the story who enters into the story as the main leading role to take upon himself the pain, the suffering, the hurt, the oppression, the brokenness, the disjointedness, the chaos into himself, onto himself, in order to bring about healing to those that have been contributors to the brokenness. Some of you are wondering, like, who is that? That is you. It's all of us. We are the contributors to that brokenness. And chapters 1 through 3 is that this is the actions of the healing God, that God has drawn us who were at enmity, those of us who have not been in sync, in harmony with this God who created us. He says that he will bring healing to us. Chapters 4 through 6 actually describe the actions of a healing community. So this community, this group of people, whoever it is, those who have been rescued, those who have trusted in, placed confidence in this, the actions of this healing God, form now a community. This community is called, by Paul, uh, the church. It's all the church basically means. It's, the church is a community of healed people. doesn't mean they're perfect, because we'll t- take a look at it in just a moment, that we are brought into this community as spiritual infants. Spiritual infants, therefore, need to grow. So that should mean, it does mean, that any church you go to, any gathering of saints you go to, any gathering of healed people, 
will be a community of people that are still in various stages of spiritual maturity, which means they may still bring offense and still bring poopy diapers and still bring spiritual stinkiness to various areas of spiritual brokenness into that community. And they're still in that process of working through. Paul would describe that as maturing, growing forth into maturing as a whole person in Christ. This is, this is what God's up to. And ultimately, this is where he's going. So the implication of these actions of a healing God is that we need to be healed. We are broken. We are living amongst broken relationships. We are living within a broken world and that God intervenes. God comes in and brings healing. And then this community, from this community, becomes a launching pad whereby healing then goes forth into the rest of this world. Because if you haven't noticed, Jesus is not here physically. Where is Jesus physically? It's a theological question. Where is Jesus right now physically? Heaven. Right. He's with God. Where is that? I have no idea. Yeah, but the reality, we'll look at it more in just a moment. That right now, Jesus is with God in a physical body. We'll unpack that more in just a moment, why that's significant. But the reality is, Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but as I go away, I will give my spirit, my presence The breath of God will be upon you to then go into this world and to do Jesus' stuff. It's Jesus' stuff. Healing, praying for the sick, laying laying hands on those that are wounded, giving a cup of cold water to those that are really thirsty, visiting prisoners that are in prison, people, in other words, that are forsaken, forgotten, marginalized, cast off to the margins of society, kicked to the curb, Jesus says, As you do it to the least of those, you're actually doing it to me. You are doing what I, in my body, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in Judea, throughout that area, what I did to the world, you will continue to do that to the world. In other words, to put it this way, chapters 4 through 6 is the actions of a healing community. That's what God is up to. So with that, again, I already kind of give you guys the punchline. The reality is we come in this world... As infants, spiritually, saved, rescued, born again as spiritual infants. Now, that need to grow. And oftentimes, this is where it gets a little bit cloudy. Because what does spiritual growth mean? Because some of us may look at those that have been Christians for a very long time. It's actually surprising to me. I've been a pastor now for over 20 years at this church. I've devoted 20, over 20 years of my life, my wife and I, to people in the community of San Luis Obispo. And what struck me as fascinating is people that just because maybe they have been in the faith or prayed a prayer or have been a part of the church for a long period of time, and I'm talking maybe a couple decades, does not immediately classify them as spiritually mature. I've known Christians that were very young in their faith, relatively, comparatively, say five years, and they're spiritually mature. So spiritual maturity is not dependent upon how much you've been in the church, how often you go to church, how much scripture you've memorized. There are other ways to classify or determine whether or not we have actually spiritually matured. For example, when I was a brand new Christian, I was sort of under the impression that spiritual maturity, and again, this was not necessarily something that was taught uh, to me, it was... uh, it was more, I think, implicit. It's something I picked up somewhere. I'm not even exactly sure where I picked it up. It may have been something that I falsely, wrongly picked up. But I had the idea that spiritual maturity 
equated to knowing a lot of Bible. That's what I thought. I thought being a strong, mature Christian meant I got to know a lot of Bible. So what I did in the first several years of my Christian walk is I read through the Bible as fast as I could. I remember the very first time finishing reading through the entire Bible. I remember how proud of myself I felt. Like I read through the Bible. I was, I don't know, like 16 years old. And I, I, I listened to, and back in those days, they had these things, they were called cassette tapes. Some of you are like, cassette what? Like cassette tape. Um, look it up, Google. But the point of the matter is, is that I used to listen to all sorts of Bible studies. I, I would go to Bible studies. I would, I, literally every single night of the week, I was involved somewhere in some Bible study, someplace, hearing somebody teach me. And when I wasn't there, I was always listening to something because I really truly believe that spiritual maturity was somehow attached to uh, knowing a lot of Bible. One of the things I realized over the years is that that's not necessarily true. I've known and met many people that know a lot of Bible and are still spiritual infants. In fact, the religious leaders, did they, here's a question, did they know a lot of Bible or know little Bible? A lot of Bible. Jesus even affirmed it. He says, you guys search the scriptures. You live your whole life. You spend all of your free time studying the book. He doesn't even describe them as infants because they weren't even alive, he says. These things, he says, testify of me. And you guys are actually dead in your trespasses and sins because you've missed the point of the book, which is me. So the point of the matter of spiritual growth is not how much Bible you know, not how many little trivial facts about the Bible you know, not how many theological debates you can argue and win, but really it's something different which is what I want to try to unpack and understand. What is the aim of God's idea with regard to spiritual maturity? So with that being said, I want to jump in to take a look at three specific things. I, for some reason, maybe because it's Father's Day, I was feeling particularly interesting this morning. I decided to kind of alliterate all these things with the letter A. So you're welcome. We'll take a look at the aim of spiritual maturity, all right? Uh, secondly, we'll take a look at the attitude of spiritual maturity. Thirdly, we'll take a look at the atmosphere of spiritual maturity. So first of all, the aim of spiritual maturity. This is kind of a purpose statement. What is God up to? Where, where is God going with spiritual maturity? Then think about it this way. If you had a bone that was out of joint, let's say you had this unbelievably throbbing pain in your arm. I remember several years ago, I had this unbelievable throbbing pain in my arm. And I come to realize is because I hadn't thrown a ball for a long time, and then I played, I don't think, I think I played softball, and I was throwing the ball really hard and far, and the rest of the afternoon, I, my arm was literally throbbing. And I come to find out later that actually my arm was out of socket, and it needed to be actually put back into socket. And if you've ever had that happen, I mean, if you've ever had that happen, any part of your body out of socket. All right, both of you, thanks for helping me. But the point of the matter is, it's extremely painful. The thing is, is that if you need to get it put back in the socket, you can either go to the ER or go to a doctor, and he will somehow, through some action, kind of like push it back in, and it's extremely painful, that process. Or you can go to some guy who has no clue what he's doing, and he'll try to like kind of push it back in. Now, the reality is, if you go to somebody who has no idea what and how to actually get that bone back into socket, or maybe I guess you can watch a YouTube video and figure it out yourself. But the point of the matter is, is that... You, you want to go to somebody that knows what wholeness looks like, knows what it looks like for a bone to be put back into socket. Or, if you go to them, they actually may bring more damage to it. But if you go to a specialist, someone who knows not only 
what it looks like for a bone to be in its proper socket and how to get a bone back into its proper socket, um, then there's wholeness that comes as a result of that. God says, I have a plan, a goal, an aim, a purpose for wholeness for this broken creation, for broken image bearers, for this cosmos. My aim is Christ-focused. There's a goal. God's aim, God's goal is not to just simply have a bunch of image bearers memorize scriptures. Now again, the idea behind memorizing scripture and reading the Bible, all of that is important, all that is good, but the the aim and the goal of maturing as a Christian is not just so that you would have a really fine-tuned, quiet time, not so that you would have a lot of journal entries in your journal by the time you die, not so that you would necessarily know a lot of Bible, but so that something else would take place in your life. And here's what Paul, I think, is going to unpack for us. There's three verses. Chapter 1 we'll take a look at, chapter 2, and then chapter 4 will end. So here's a couple quick verses we'll run through very fast. First of all, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, is in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. Did you catch that verse 10? That God has a plan. His plan is that in the fullness of time, that he's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. That all things, that which is out of sync, out of joint. In other words, the idea is that right now, creation is nothing more than one big, out of joint system. That's the pain we suffer under. That's the pain you suffer under in your life. That's the pain that we as a community of people try to are figuring out. That's why we see things like that. what happened down in Isla Vista. Somebody was throbbing with pain and didn't know how to deal with that throbbing pain in a way that brought wholeness. Instead, they brought that pain into a whole community of people that's now throbbing with pain. That's the world we live in. And God says, I have a plan to set this world, which is pain-ridden, pain-stricken, to right. That I will unite all things in heaven and all things on earth. This is sort of a euphemism. It's a way of describing that heaven is the perfect zone where God lives. It's God's kingdom, God's zone, God's realm. It's where God is. Earth is what God created to reflect God's beauty. And God created image bearers, human beings, so that we would uh, image and uh, bring forth, shine forth the glory, the goodness of God in this world. And so God, when he created Adam and Eve and the host of people following Adam and Eve, rather than imaging and loving and serving God and giving thanks to God and all this things that we talked about earlier, rather than giving praise, love, and honor back to God, man turned in on himself and basically began to turn away from God, began to govern his own life, which ultimately led to a compound of more brokenness in this world. And God says, I have a plan to set things right. And the way this will happen is heaven and earth will be united. Here's another way to think about the world in which we live in. Right now, heaven and earth are actually divided. Earth, man's zone, human being's zone, where we live, is not collectively, democratically, in favor of letting God rule in our earth zone. Would you agree with that? Right? You guys, not absolutely certain. You guys, you guys all agree with that? Okay, good. Because earth is broken. It's very broken. 
lots of brokenness. And the reason why is because God created things to be perfect. But right now, it's a way of basically saying earth is like a cog that is disrupted. It's not working properly with heaven. Right now, heaven and earth are divided. Because what God's doing. He's creating, he, he initiated the work whereby heaven and earth are going to overlap one day. So you get in the book of Revelation, it says that God will create or bring forth or birth forth a new heavens and a new earth. One in which heaven and earth overlap. It's what Jesus instructed his disciples to pray. He says, when you pray, ask God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. What's happening in heaven? Well, there's wholeness, there's justice, there's peace, there's love, there's community. On earth, there's deceit, there's brokenness, there's death, there's duplicity, there's lying. What's the solution? Heaven and earth need to overlap once again. Right now, they are divided from one another. They are separated. They are not in unity or unison with one another. And Jesus says, one of these, what Paul is declaring is that one of these days, God will bring a reuniting of heaven and earth once again. And there will be order. There will be structure. There will be justice. There will be love to the point where in the book of Revelation, it says there will be no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain. Those things that once were associated or brought forth pain and destruction and rebellion and hurt uh, will be done away with and will never interfere with God's good creation again. This is what God is up to. It's, remember how I said earlier, and how do we know that God's already doing this? Well, here's what's amazing, okay? Right now, when Jesus uh, died, when Jesus rose again, he rose again in, here's another theological question, did Jesus rose, rise again in a physical body or a spiritual body? Physical body. Physical body. A physical body that has physical elements, that has wounds in the physical body. Jesus, of course, is spirit, but he is spirit in a physical body which is an affirmation that God is basically reaffirming, saying, I love this physical world. God affirms this physical world. Jesus, first thing he does, as he's uh, raised from the grave, he actually goes to a barbecue. He eats fish. Again, a reaffirmation that God says, I love this physical world. But right now, this physical world is broken. Filled with broken people, filled with broken relationships. And God is bringing about a plan to, is enacting this plan to bring about the healing to this. Now, Jesus, 40 days later, actually uh, ascended into heaven as a physical being, physical body. In heaven right now, there's a physical body clothing the Son of God. And this is God's way of saying, right now, there's a physical being in heaven. One day, heaven will overlap earth, and the two will become joined, one healing, wholeness, justice, love, forgiveness, cleansing, purity, instead of defilement, will one day become the norm. Right now, it's not. Right now, we live in the in-between time. Right now, we live in a time where Jesus is saying, the church is the signpost that all of these things have begun. Because the church is the place that you can go into and see broken people now made whole. The church is the place that you can go to where you can see defiled people forgiven. The place where you can go and see dead people made alive. The place that you can go and see all of these things beginning to unpack. So what Paul is going to say is that these are the aim of God's plan. Next verse in chapter 2, 
I'll go through these real quickly again. I said that earlier, but I slowed down. Uh, He says, you who were once far off have been now brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, he came and declared peace to you who are far off. So kind of what's going on right here is Paul is describing that in the world of Paul's day, uh, Paul was a Jew. Most of us are probably familiar a little bit with Paul's history. He was Jewish. Uh, but Paul was writing to a church, a community of people in a city co- called Ephesus, and these people were actually non-Jewish. What Paul is saying is he's commending them, saying that in your community, there are Jews and Gentiles come together. And what's unique about this coming together of Jew and Gentile is there's no hostility. No hostility. It'd be like shortly around the time of, say, 1960, It'd be like going to a Bible study where there are blacks and whites together in a Bible study in Georgia. That would be a shock because it didn't happen. Or it'd be a shock to go to a place like that where in that community, whites were actually saying, you know what? I want you to sit at the front of the bus. We'll take the back seat. It just didn't happen that way. But if it did happen that way, that would be a shocker because it'd be a very tangible way of saying, we're showing preference to you who the culture says we're to despise. And what Paul is commending is saying that middle wall of hostility that was between Jew and Gentile has now been dissolved. And now that hostility that was between Jew and Gentile has been made right. Jews are with Gentiles. Males are with females in a non-condescending fashion. Uh, rich people are hanging out with poor people in a non-condescending, non-segmented type of fashion. And Paul is saying all this is happening because God, who is God, chose to befriend people who are totally unlike him. And now that same show of kindness and welcome and love and acceptance is now resonating through the church from Jew to Gentile, from rich to poor, from male to female, from uh, slave to master, and so on and so forth, back over again. And Paul is saying all of this is pouring forth, demonstrating the reality that God is aiming at something. And that aim that which he's declaring is that he's going to bring peace, make peace to those areas in which there is nothing but unsoundness or brokenness or sin or death. Final verse is in chapter 4, uh, which is where exactly we're at. So chapter 4 says this, next one. Verse 10, he says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. And what we said a couple weeks ago is that we, I, perhaps, if you have a different interpretation, that's fine. But my interpretation of it was that Jesus came from heaven to earth. The descending is not so much descending into the, the, the heart of the earth, but the descending is to, from heaven to earth. And that from earth went back up into heaven. And what he's saying is that he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And what Paul is deriving and saying that what God is up to right now is he's wanting to fill this whole earth, not just this physical, tangible earth, but that which is intangible, that which is spiritual, the heavens, that which is seen and that which is unseen. That God is at work in this world. His aim is to bring healing to everything. Everything. This is really good news. So this is where, again, the idea is that we can oftentimes focus on the subjective nature of the gospel. Meaning, you were once a sinner, saved, or you were once uh, unrighteous, or somebody that was once alienated from God, and yet God saved you. And that's true. The Bible speaks to the subjective nature of you experiencing personally uh, salvation from God but it doesn't end there. In other words, it's not less than you and Jesus. 
and you going to heaven one day when you die, it's more than that, that God has brought you into something in which he is bringing healing to this entire creation that is sick and broken and hurting and reeling from its pain and rebellion and the oppression based upon what the Bible describes as the sons of men, meaning human beings who were called to steward this creation well. Instead, we have actually abused it, and therefore we brought pain and brokenness. And God is right now up to his aim in all of this is so that those who represent Christ in this world can be a part of this healing purposes. That's why I describe the church as a healing community. Our actions of showing and demonstrating favor and forgiveness to others, especially those that have wronged us, are ways in which we point to this creator God who has forgiven us, who has wronged him, rather than giving him praise and honor recognition for it, the glory of his grace uh, is actually receiving us and accepting us, and therefore we are washed and cleansed. So in short, I kind of wrote something out. Sometimes when I'm processing through stuff, I just tend to write stuff out. So the next slide, and I'll just read it, so hopefully it'll make sense to you guys. Um, it's very wordy, because sometimes that's the way I just write stuff out. It's very wordy, so I apologize if it's too wordy for you, but that's what I wrote. Anyways, I wrote this. Said, the movement that was initiated and led by Jesus is one of welcome instead of alienation, Forgiveness instead of nurturing grudges, building up instead of destroying, healing instead of wounding, protecting instead of exploiting, generosity instead of anxious accumulation. And therefore, his followers are called, to, uh, called and equipped to embody these actions which were graciously shown to them, uh, shown, uh, shown to them to the church. So again, this kind of looks at the three spheres in which now the church, you as an individual that has been shown Forgiveness instead of God holding a grudge against you that has been shown healing instead of God wounding you further that this church is now part of this community that then shows this type of actions to the church, to the, to the, the immediate body, but then not ending there because then it goes to the neighborhood, but then it doesn't stop there either. It continues to encircle out into the field of enemies. So how can that be? Well, because that's exactly what God did to you. It's exactly how God reached out to us. In fact, we weren't just neighbors of God. We weren't even part of God's community. We were his enemies. And yet God showed us welcome instead of alienation, forgiveness instead of nurturing, nurturing grudges over us, building for us instead of destroying us, healing, protecting, and striving at generosity. God has shown to us in all these areas. So the second thing we begin to take a look at is not just simply the aim of spiritual maturity, but the attitude of spiritual maturity. The attitude of spiritual maturity. So there's basically two ways to kind of identify this. The first is the negative, and Paul actually puts this or spins this within a negative in verse 14. I'll read it. And uh, there's three specific things that he describes. First of which is Paul says that we are not to be children. So take a look at verse 14. He says, so that we may no longer be children. So the idea is that we would not be infants the concept is being immature. The whole point that Paul is saying is that the, if this is God's aim to bring about healing to all things, and God has actually elected or called the church to live out this vocation of healing in this world, then in order for us to be what God intends for us to be, we've got to go and undertake this process of maturing. And that is a lifelong process. That's challenging. It's hard for us. And the reality is, is that involves 
uh, really no longer being children. So there is a time when, like a real biological child, when they're born, little children, one of the thing, uh, features that is characteristic of a little child is they are really actually self-focused. This is not necessarily that they are by intent, want to be self-focused, but they just are. They need mom to help them. They need mom to feed them. They need dad to change their diaper. They need uh, all sorts of other things. They need food. And so they're constantly, they're never, one of the things that's characteristic of a child is a child is never, ever asking, how are you doing? Like a child never looks up to the mom while it's getting diaper changed or it's feeding like, mom, how are you doing? It must be really stressful for you. Constantly staking like every two hours, feeding me, changing my diapers. That was a nasty one yesterday. And yet you love me. How are you doing? Did you ever get a break, mom? You seem to never take a break. A child never asks that question. It's because they're just, they're just by nature self-focused. And Paul is saying spiritual people are the same way. They're just focused on themselves. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that if you're a brand new Christian. You need nurturing. You need helping. You need to be cared for so that you grow. But if you're 10 years old, 20 years old in the Lord, and you're still focused on yourself, how come church isn't doing this for me? How come they are not helping me out? How come they're not taking care of me for this? Then what Paul would say, you are actually showing traits that you are a spiritual infant. And Paul would say, it's time for you to really understand the gospel and begin to grow up in the full maturity. Second thing is unstable. And Paul actually uses a nautical term to describe the instability of a young, immature uh, follower of Christ. Here's what he says. He says, to the measure of the statue of Christ, and in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So he actually uses a nautical term, but then um, also uses a meteorological, meteorological type of a terminology. So the first of which is that we would not be unstable, tossed to and fro, um, all over the place. Now, one of the things that you oftentimes can identify with regard to a little child is that they're totally unstable. A, not only do they know how to walk, and if they do begin to walk, if you've seen a little child walk, they're kind of very unstable. They're always holding on to something, and if they let go, they fall on their bottom and, you know, or fall down, and they're just always unstable. They're walking like oftentimes like a, an intoxicated adult. You know? They don't have a lot of balance. They're very disoriented, and it doesn't take that much to you know, like make them fall down. You can just like go like this. You don't even have to touch them. And they're just like, oh, and they fall on their bottom, you know. And the reality is, is that they're just unstable. They're very disoriented children. And the idea here is that uh, Paul is saying that like an unstable child, very easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, meaning there's not a lot of stability within their life. They're very easily swayed, and they're always up and down based upon whatever types of circumstances, whether or not the church service uh, particularly uh, struck their emotions. If you're the type of person that's always just simply looking for an experience and your spiritual walk is dependent upon, you know, what type of experience you have, you're actually showing indication of the fact that uh, you're perhaps still in a spiritual immature state. You are dependent upon certain experiences in order to affirm your self-worth or your value before God. Whereas... One that begins to grow and begins to mature, they begin to become comfortable in the fact that that's my dad. My dad loves me. I don't need to realize, like, my dad hates me because I forgot to take out the trash. My dad still loves me, even though I failed. That there's a stability about a person's life. That we're not tossed to and fro. And then the final thing, so that is the idea of gullibility. Um, Verse 14, um, the last part of verse 14, it goes on, it says this. He says, uh, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. And this is the picture of somebody actually like playing a card game or the idea of some sort of a game and trying to pull the wool over somebody else. 
in somebody's eyes so that they don't swallow uh, false or bad teaching that is not consistent with the nature of the gospel. And so really what Paul is saying is that like a child who literally, if you've ever been around a little child or people that have little children, you know that parents, good parents or even uh, good supervisors are always going around the room, sweeping up, picking up little particles of dirt or dust or little pennies or little tiny Legos. You know, they got the big Legos and they got the small Legos. If you're a good parent, you realize you're not going to give your kid a little Lego because you know the kid's immediately like hand, Lego, mouth. Like that's the combination of death right there. Like, like you don't want a child to just be around things that are small because they will always eat it. They can't discern the difference between a Cheerio and a tiny, you know, yellow Lego. They don't know the difference. To them, it's all the same. It just simply goes in the mouth. And if they eat the wrong thing, they can become very sick or perhaps even choke and die. And what Paul is saying is that immature, young, childlike followers of Jesus oftentimes are those that, know, that don't know how to discern between good gospel teaching, just simply dumb gospel teaching that is inaccurate or not consistent, and bad gospel teaching that is actually in another gospel. They don't know how to discern that. Oftentimes, a young believer in Christ can just be like, oh, look, it's Christian. Oh, it's on Christian television. It's all good. Oh, look, that guy has a very large hairdo. He must be a Christian, and he must be really good. And the reality is that some Christians who don't know how to discern because they're still trying to figure out the difference between what's good, what's acceptable, what's edible, what should be avoided, they don't know how to discern. They just eat it all. And Paul's saying part of spiritual maturity is growing and understanding how to discern Knowing God's word, knowing how to apply, knowing how to identify error, knowing how to identify the various types of error. Because you know that really, in reality, not all error is the exact same type of error. There's some error that's actually so deadly, so lethal that can actually destroy you. So, for example, if you think that God loves you based upon your performance, that is another gospel. It's a gospel that basically says, I am accepted by good performance. It's another gospel you will put yourself under a path of oppression that will crush and destroy your soul. But there are other forms of error in which, say, for example, you know, when's the end times going to happen? When's the rapture going to unfold? How is it going to unfold? Some would say one way, some would say another way. Somebody's got to be wrong. Look, at the end of the day, there's all sorts of different types of ways of trying to understand the end times. Somebody in that whole discussion is not right. There are those that think... The discussion about the end times is so essential, so important, that they will actually divide Bible studies, divide between churches, blog, nasty blogs about people, alienate, write off other Christians because they have a difference of opinion. That is an inability to discern between different types of teachings. But Paul is saying is that a young believer in Christ, an immature believer in Christ that really needs to grow up in their faith in Christ is one that just has no discernment. They're tossed to and fro, bouncing all over the place. So put this into a sort of a positive spin. We can say it like this, that true spiritual maturity looks like someone that's other-centered. I mean, you can be going through really challenging situations, and yet even in the midst of the challenging situations that you are still looking out for others. How are you doing? I know my life's horrible. My life's challenging. It's destroying by X, Y, and Z. But how are you doing? I pray for you. It's other-centered. Another way of looking at it is they're stable. They can handle with maturity when things don't go their way. It's not like a child. When a child doesn't get things for their way, they throw a tantrum. The opposite of that is when things don't go your way. How do you react when God says to your prayer, no? 
not going to give you that job. Nope, I'm not going to give you that boyfriend. I don't want that marriage to go through. I'm not going to give you that child right now. You're not going to have this job. Your prayers for your father's longevity in life aren't going to be answered. He's going to die. Your spouse will be gone. I'm going to say no to you. How do we react? We throw a tantrum, angry. It could be indicative of the fact that we are still in a place of maturity. And Paul is saying, I want you to grow into a place of stability, into a place where you're able to understand that we have a father. A father truly loves us. He has a purpose, not only for you, but he has a purpose for this world that's cosmic. It's big. It's massive. It is not about you. It involves you. But it's about his ultimate purposes in this world that are big and great and sweeping and beautiful. And finally, uh, there's a sense of being discerning, meaning you know the Scripture. And not just simply know the Scripture, you know the heart of God. It's not just you simply memorizing verses and being able to quote them verbatim so that you can win some argument um, or being able to shut someone down in the middle of a dinner, you know, at Thanksgiving, someone, you know, says something awkward and you're just like, I'm going to shut them down by the verse and Bible knowledge and theology that I know. And then you say the little thing and all of a sudden there's that awkward silence of like, oh, that was weird. You know, Mr. Christian here just all, made all of us feel like a bunch of idiots. Like, like that, that is misusing Bible, by the way. To win your argument, not to make much of Jesus. But discerning people who are growing in their faith, they use Bible to make much of Jesus, not to just simply shut other people down to make them look foolish, even though they may be foolish. A mature person is able to say, you know what, (laughs) their actions are maybe messed up, but I want them to see the beauty of Christ. And so part of that spiritual maturity involves being others-focused, stable, and then discerning. And finally, I want to finish with this. What is the atmosphere of spiritual maturity? Well, Paul says basically two things. One, last slide, is that we're to speak the truth in love, and then finally we're to do this together in community. So the first thing, speak the truth in love, is he just simply says speaking the truth in love. This is a challenging statement to follow, to embody, because most of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can say, I can speak truth with no love. Have you ever met those Christians? They're really good at just simply telling you what's up, right? They know theology. They know scripture. They're the type of person. Then that was me, to be honest with you. That was me for a very long time in my Christian walk. Like, remember all that Bible knowledge I told you I, I invested myself in? Well, all that Bible knowledge made its way out where I was the guy that would always win the arguments. In fact, I was the guy that was kind of like equivalent to sort of a Christian version of a pit bull, where I would look for people that were like squandering in their faith or, you know, kind of wavering or, you know, inst- unstable. In their, and I'd be like, I'm going to go after them and let them know that they are messed up and they're, they're, they're bound for destruction. And I would speak the truth, but not in love. Or some of us may more gravitate towards, associate with the idea of speaking love, but withholding truth. Because if we tell the truth, then we might look bad, or we might make them angry with me, and I don't want to fall out of sorts or fall out of favor with them. So therefore, I'll be really kind and very nice, and I won't speak truth to them because it might offend them, and then they might hate me. And their opinion about me means everything to me, and I don't want to lose their opinion about me. Or cause it to be made messed, made messed up. So, I will speak lovingly, but not truthfully. Others will say, I will speak truthfully, but not loving. 
uh, Warren Wiersbe, a pastor, uh, we'll come back to this slide in just a second here, um, next slide, um, said this, actually a really great quote. He says this, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. Both need to happen. Both need to happen. So back to the last slide, and I'll wrap it up, or the slide that we just looked at. He finishes with this little section. I want you to read this last verse, verse 16. He says this, uh, from whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, there's that emphasis upon love. And the whole idea is, how can this happen? I realize we live in a culture, in a lot of ways, that really emphasizes and tries to fan and inflame our own sense of independence. In which you can do this on your own. All you need is just Jesus. You don't need a church. You don't need a community. And oftentimes, we sort of look at the church as the place where we can go periodically, a couple times a month, um, and really sort of pick and choose, sort of like a buffet line. We'll kind of take some of the food that we really want and omit some of the food that we don't really want. We'll just kind of uh, nitpick over that and then uh, take the morsels in which we find particularly appetizing and leave the rest. But the reality is we rarely find ourselves engaging with others, really working in relationship with other people, working through offenses that oftentimes arise because we never actually get into periods of offense or challenge or struggle or or difficulty because we're never really truly being vulnerable with other people. The reason why we're not being vulnerable with other people is because we're afraid that somehow either we're going to let someone down, they're going to be disappointed in us, or they will let us down and we'll feel betrayed. But do you hear what Paul's saying? You cannot grow spiritually off in the margins. You can't. I'll, I'll restate that. You cannot grow as a Christian into this full stature that Jesus is saying. In other words, this healing, this cosmic healing that God is bringing into this world will It'll miss you. It'll pass you up if you try to marginalize yourself. You're basically saying, I don't want any of it. I want it for me, but I don't want to pass it on to those others around me. Or if you choose to pass it on to others, you selectively choose who you pass it on to. And you never really fully enter into the full orbed healing that God wants to bring about. Not only into your life personally, subjectively, but ultimately cosmically into this entire world which he's bringing all things. So the question then comes, how do we let our hearts trust others in the church to the point that even if they hurt us, like Paul says, listen carefully, the last section right here, he says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, in other words, there's a self-repairing mechanism within the church body that when it hurts itself, when it breaks down, when it's dysfunctional, it also has an ability to repair itself. But if many of us say, I don't want to be part of that church body, I don't want to be part of relationships that can also oftentimes cause pain, that when we omit and pull ourselves away, because it's hard, we jump from church to church, jump from family to family, jump from relationship to relationship, jump from friendship to friendship, because it gets hard, we're actually, in essence, saying, I don't want to really truly grow In other words, you may or may not even be cognitively saying that, but that is the reality. You will stunt your spiritual growth. Because at the end of the day, what we have in Christianity is we have a God who comes to us and doesn't just speak truth to us unlovingly and doesn't just speak nice, loving things, omitting the truth. He comes to us in truth and love. And that's 
exactly what the cross is. The cross is the greatest fusion of truth and love come together. It's on the cross. If you understand the cross, the cross is basically saying, like what Tim Keller says, I'm going to botch exactly how he says it, but he says it to some degree like this, that really what the cross shows is that you are far more messed up, dysfunctional, broken, sinful, than you have ever even paused to imagine how messed up you are. That's offensive to us. We never like to be told how jacked up we are. We want people to tell us, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're a winner. And we want people to somehow affirm us, but that's speaking love without truth. But he goes on to say, not only are you more messed up, more sinful, more dysfunctional than you can ever even imagine, but simultaneously the cross shows us another thing that rounds it off, that you are more loved than you can ever even imagine. Because the cross shows us that not only is God sitting there pointing the finger at us saying that you are broken, you are messed up, you're dysfunctional, you're separated, you're isolated, you're ruined, yet I will do something about that dysfunctionality, that ruin, that brokenness, that destruction by coming into your world and being crushed for you, being bruised for you, being oppressed with the oppression which you've been oppressed with so that you then can be given life in exchange. That is the love of God put on display through the cross. That is what we celebrate. That's the good news, that we have a God that has not abandoned us in our brokenness, but has come to us and done something about it. It's that truth that liberates us and sets us free and allows us to say, God changed me. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and as they're coming up, I want to read just a great little quote by John Newton. Most of you guys know who John Newton is. He wrote that great song, Amazing Grace. But some of you may or may not know that he actually was an entrepreneur, and what he became really rich in and very successful in was the slave trade. He actually owned a boat, a ship, that actually did several runs down to Africa and picked up slaves and then deposited them all over different posts and different spots. But when he became a Christian... Um, he actually still continued his business, which is kind of an interesting irony. And within that, at some point, God convicted him, showed him how wrong and how inhumane and how destructive the slave trade was. And finally, he relinquished all that and got rid of it and wrote the song Amazing Grace. And this is a great line which he said. It resonates with me. Hopefully it resonates with you. Here's what he says. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say that I'm not what I once was slave to sin and Satan. That is the reality of where all of us are at. Some of us have various stages in our growth with Jesus in our maturity process. But what God is wanting to do for his whole body, his community of saints, his community of healed people, is to make us his healing community so that as we grow in our faith that we would be part of this global, cosmic purpose of God in this world that is desperately broken filled with broken people. To do that, God has given you a new identity. You are not identified as a defiled, sinful person anymore. You are a child of God. If by faith, you have trusted Christ. This is why, and this is what God invites us into. So let's, let's all stand. Let's sing. Let's just confess love back to him. There's communion in the back for you guys to remember. We partake of the broken bread. It's a way of reminding us of the fact that Jesus was broken so that you and I who are broken, we are broken people. We live in broken relationships. We've had a broken relationship with us and God. That Jesus was broken so that we who are broken can be made whole.
We have some people off to the side that would love to pray for you. We say this every week, but we really, truly want you to, to get the reality of this is that we gather here not just as a bunch of people to sing songs and listen to a message and somehow pump ourselves up, but we, we gather with the belief and the trust that, that God is here. God really, truly wants to change people's lives and set you free. And if you're sick with certain sicknesses and disease, God, we never know. God can heal. God may want to heal you. With broken relationships. God wants to heal. He wants to breathe life into those things. We serve life-giving God. Let's turn our hearts to him. That requires us doing what's called confessing our sin, repenting, turning from things, turning from bad beliefs about God to beliefs that are healing, transformative, changing. So God, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to sing. Now, help us, God, as we just meditate upon these truths to let our hearts that have been filled with the reality of who you are resound, God, back to you with love and affection and praise.